You know, one of my favorite heroes of the faith is a 20th century pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer served over in Germany as a faithful follower of Jesus during the days of the Third Reich. He was a faithful preacher of the gospel. He was an incredible author. And he was also a statesman for the sake of the gospel. Well, in April of 1943, he was arrested by the Gestapo. He was taken to a Nazi imprisonment camp where he would stay for two years. While he was in prison for those two years, he would write letters to his fiance, and he would also write letters trying to encourage and strengthen the church. But on April the 9th, 1945, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was marched across the prison courtyard to the hangman's noose. His final words were this, this is the end. For me, the beginning of life. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered Dietrich Bonhoeffer to stare death in the face and not blink. When we get to the end of Acts chapter 7, we see where Stephen is staring death in the face and he does not blink. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 7. We're going through the book of Acts together as a faith family and we're coming to the end of our mini-series in Acts 7 of Treasure Map. Stephen, who's a deacon, a servant leader within the early church, was falsely accused of blasphemy. These liars rose up against him and claimed that he spoke against the temple, that he spoke against the law, that he spoke against God. And for these accusations, he was required to go and stand before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme High Court. About 70 men plus the high priest And they have the authority to kill him for speaking blasphemy. Well, throughout Acts chapter 7, Stephen gives his defense before these false accusations that have been leveraged against him. For the majority of the message, he has recited the history of Israel's nation. He goes all the way back to Abraham through the temple. But then in verses 51 through 53, Stephen goes on the offensive. He blisters the Sanhedrin for their hypocrisy, resisting of the Holy Spirit, and their rejection of the righteous one. Indeed, he's arguing they're the ones who are the blasphemers, not him. Now we see their response in Acts chapter 7, beginning with verse 54. Scripture says this, When they heard these things, they were enraged and gnashed their teeth at him. Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. They yelled at the top of their voices, covered their ears, and together rushed against him. 
They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And after saying this, he died. These are two significant moments in the closing minutes of Stephen's life that I want us to see together today that I think stand out. I want you to notice these two things here in the text of what happened to Stephen and then what this means for us. I want you to see first Stephen's vision of the exalted and enthroned Son of Man. After giving a magnum opus of a defense spanning Israel's history from Abraham all the way to the temple, Stephen delivers the knockout punch by accusing the Sanhedrin of completely missing Messiah Jesus. Stephen's closing comments, as we saw last week in verses 51 through 53, they were like hitting a detonator button on an explosive device. He struck a nerve, and the Sanhedrin was livid. I want you to hear me on this. If you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you've got to be prepared for people to be angry with you. Faithfulness to Jesus necessitates that people will not like you. This is what's happening here. He's preaching the gospel, and hear me, the gospel is offensive. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing in this world. And if you're going to be faithful to Scripture, you've got to be prepared for people not to like you. For being faithful to Christ and faithful to His message, be prepared for the religious and the worldly to reject you because of Christ in you. And though there are many in our world who try to fit Jesus into their idolatrous image of only being a loving and accepting Savior, but not the righteous judge who calls us to repent of sin, they will gnash their teeth. They will yell at you for such an exclusive and intolerant message. But hear me on this. Faithfulness to Jesus means joyfully accepting the anger and rage of the world while simultaneously responding with forgiveness and love. Following Jesus means people will be angry at you. And may I say to you, it's okay for the right people to be angry at you. Faithfulness in your discipleship means that some people are going to be bothered by your passion for Jesus. But hear me on this. If everyone agrees with you, you're doing something wrong. Faithfulness to Jesus and his gospel means it's going to cut against the grain of the world and the culture in which we now live. Now hear me. We're not out to make enemies. Okay, we don't seek to provoke people to anger and then wave the flag of suffering. No, 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 no. Being a jerk and calling yourself a martyr is foolish. Okay? That's not who we are. As Westwood, that's not us. We're not a people who are out to intentionally make people angry. And yet, if we're going to be humbly following Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, seeking to honor Christ and sharing the gospel with coworkers and neighbors, don't be surprised when people get angry with you. See, people being upset with you does not mean you're doing something wrong. In fact, it may mean that you're being faithful. And when people lie about you, stand firm in the Lord. Because ultimately, y'all, we're going to stand before the great tribunal of God. 
in which every single one of us are going to be going one-on-one with God. Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once, and after this, the judgment. And with this reality, in the end, it doesn't really matter what the world thinks about you. The only thing that really matters is what does the king think about you. We live for his praise, not the world's. We seek to honor Christ above all. We want the praise of God, not the fleeting and fake praise of the world. And as followers of Jesus, we're going to be tempted. Either stand with Jesus or stand with the world. I implore you as your pastor, always stand with Jesus. Here is the Sanhedrin. Enraged because Stephen has ripped off the mask. He has ripped off this religious veneer that they had put off. They had put up. He was going after their hearts and they gnashed their teeth at him. They're grinding their teeth with rage, with venom and frustration. This idea of gnashing teeth in scripture, it's the response of unbelievers against truth. Okay, Psalm 37, 12 says, the wicked person schemes against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. And yet, as the tempest of the Sanhedrin's fury is burning around him, Stephen was calm. He was, verse 55, full of the Holy Spirit. This is what the early church saw in Stephen. You go back to Acts 6.2 and Acts 6.10. You see a man who's full of the Holy Spirit. He has yielded his life to the Spirit's control. All the peace the Holy Spirit plants within our hearts when we're walking with and obeying Him. And as the Sanhedrin completely lost it and have murder in their hearts, God gives Stephen a vision. God pulls back the curtain of the throne room of heaven and shows Stephen the glory of God. Stephen is given a front row seat to Isaiah 6 and Revelation 4 and 5, this vision of the throne room of God. And what is Jesus doing but verse 55? Standing at the right hand of God. This morning, I want you to see what Jesus standing in heaven pictures for Stephen and for us. The first thing that it pictures is that Jesus stands as Stephen's and our advocate. As our advocate. Stephen's name, his character, his theology has been drugged through the mud. He's been lied about. These false accusations placed upon him. And these lies cost him his life. And as we see in the text, under the accusations of the court of this world, he is condemned. But in the court of God, he's vindicated. Hear me on this. You may be lied about throughout your life. You may face injustice. But what's encouraging about Acts 7 is that the Lord sees. The Lord knows And the Lord will vindicate. There's coming a day in which everything hidden in the dark will be brought to light. Nobody gets away with anything before the all-seeing eye of God. When people go through backdoor deals and secret meetings against you, against your character, against your theology, against your life, you do not fear. For God sees, God knows, and God will vindicate. 
But this is true for you on an even greater scale because there is an even greater liar who lies about you. What we see here is a picture of Jesus Christ, our advocate. You see, Satan is not only a liar, he is the accuser. He accuses you. He hates you. He wants to condemn you. He hates you as an image bearer and he hates Christ in you. And so what we see as a picture throughout scripture is almost like a courtroom scene where you, the defendant, the accused, Satan, the prosecuting attorney with a laundry list of sins, some that are true and some that are not. And then standing up there is the judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus, your advocate, 1 John 2, 1, gets up off the bench's bench, um, the judge's bench, and he comes down and stands next to you as your defense attorney. And he says, my blood has covered all of their sins. They're free to go. The beauty of Jesus is that he is your defense attorney. Before the liar and the accuser, Jesus steps in as your advocate, as your defense. And through your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're clean, you're washed, you're free to go. You are holy and blameless in his sight. You've been made clean by the blood of the Lamb. That Jesus is your righteousness. He is the one who stands before you. But hear me. Those who do not trust in the Lord Jesus Christ stand alone. They will give an account in the great tribunal of God. But for us, as followers of Jesus, we have an advocate. Jesus, the righteous. Paul asks, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. And he is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Jesus stands as Stephen's defense and your defense. And though the Sanhedrin and Satan stand against Christ and against his followers, you and Stephen stand justified, holy and blameless in the sight of God. It is not your righteousness, it is Christ's righteousness in you and credited to your account. That you are pure and blameless before a holy God, all because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So on that day, when you go one-on-one -on -one with God, you do not fear if you are hidden in Christ. For Jesus is your advocate. The second thing we see here in the text, Jesus stands as Stephen's and our soon-returning king. Stephen sees the glory of God, verse 55. And who's in the middle of it? Jesus. With this vision of Jesus standing at the right hand of God, Stephen refers to him as the Son of Man. The Son 
of man. It's interesting. You go back to Mark 14. Last night as I was studying this, I was like, man, where have I seen this before? I went back to Mark 14, verse 62. And there is Jesus standing before the same Sanhedrin, the same high court. And what does he tell them? He says, you're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of God coming in all of his glory. And Jesus saying that so enraged the Sanhedrin that the high priest tore his robe and they attacked Jesus. They beat him. They slapped him. They spit upon him. And as I was studying that last night, I thought, oh my goodness, that's what's happening here. Stephen in Acts 7 is saying, I see the Son of Man. Now, what's the significance of that title? Well, it's apocalyptic language. It's this idea that the Son of Man, who is Jesus, is the one who is God, who is coming back to rescue his people. Daniel had this vision in Daniel chapter 7 of this exact reality, in which Daniel said, I continued watching in the night, visions, and suddenly, one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Oh, what a sight that God is showing to Stephen. As Acts 7 pictures Jesus on the doorsteps of his soon return to rescue his church, destroy his enemies, and establish his eternal kingdom. That indeed Jesus is coming soon, church. Jesus is coming back physically, bodily. He's coming back to rescue the redeemed. And as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, that the dead in Christ are going to rise first. And those who are still alive, we will meet him in the air and we will be with the Lord. Jesus is coming back. And soon, soon, he's doing away with death. Death will be thrown into the lake of fire. Death will be no more. This is the future that scripture promises to us. And here is Stephen on the brink of his own death. And he sees the Son of Man. And what a reminder to him. There's coming a day in which he's coming back and death is no more. As he's on the brink of being stoned to death, Jesus is revealing to him, I'm coming back. He stands at the doorstep. And he's prepared to return and rescue his bride. Third thing. Jesus stands in affirmation of Stephen's and our boldness. Quite simply, Stephen stands for Jesus, so Jesus stands for Stephen. We see a picture of divine affirmation for faithfulness. It's a public witness for Christ that is bold, and Jesus celebrates it. I was talking about this text this morning on, on Sunday mornings. We have deacons who will come and pray for me and our staff, and they prayer walk our entire campus on Sunday mornings. And this morning I was walking through the sermon with one of the deacons, Ryan Lawyer, and he goes, man, that sounds like a pep rally. It's like, Ryan, that's exactly right. As Jesus sees this man who's boldly preaching the gospel and dying for his faith in Christ, Jesus stands affirmation. Have you ever been a part of, a, of an audience that gave a standing ovation? Maybe it was for like a really great athletic performance 
or a, a concert uh, or maybe a play that was just so compelling. At the very end, the audience stands to their feet and there's this celebration of, wow, that was so good. That's a picture of what Jesus is doing here with Stephen. That is, his blood is being spilled on Jerusalem's soil. As he is having rocks thrown at his face and at his chest, Jesus stands in affirmation. When I was a teenager, I would play soccer and my dad would sit in the stands. And whenever I would make a good play, he would yell so the entire city could hear. And he would yell, that's my boy, right? And now I get to do the same thing to my kids. What we see here in Acts 7 is Jesus looking upon the work of Stephen and saying, that's my boy. I'm so proud of you. This is a standing ovation from Jesus to Stephen. What a picture. Is this not what you and I want? The divine affirmation of God in which he celebrates, affirms, and honors the sacrifices that we make for his glory. Now, though most of us will not die a martyr's death, the Lord still sees your work. He still sees you daily denying yourself, picking up your cross and following him. He still sees you serving people, even when the rest of the world and even the church doesn't see it. The Lord sees. The Lord knows and he will reward you. The Lord sees the sacrifices that you make so that the gospel can go forth. The church can be edified. God sees what you do in secret and one day he will reward and celebrate you. What we have here is a picture of the Lord looking at the efforts of a man who is laying it all on the line. And may I say to you, may you and I go and do likewise. That though we may never have stones or bullets coming at us, we can still seek the praise and honor of God. And one day he will stand in affirmation of your love and devotion to him. I'm not sure about you, but that's what I desire. More than anything. And all that I would put that desire within you if I could by the Spirit just that you would desire this more than a really big 401k, that you would desire this more than a pay raise, that you would desire this more than beautiful children, that you would desire this more than the praise and the power of the world, that you would seek the praise of Jesus. And if you live your life seeking to make everyone else hear well done, good and faithful servant, guess what? You'll hear it too. Give your life to this moment. Here is Stephen making the sacrifice. And the Lord says, that's my boy. And the Lord sees your sacrifice. He sees your devotion. He says, that's my boy. That's my girl. And he celebrates your commitment and devotion to him and your bold public witness of him in the gospel. Jesus said in Luke 12, anyone who acknowledges me before others the Son of Man will also acknowledge Him before the angels of God. But whoever denies me before others will be denied before the angels of God. Westwood, may we be a people who seek to acknowledge Christ, honor Christ, preach Christ to the world so that they might know and follow Him. Jesus stands for those who stand for Him. Fourthly, Jesus stands to welcome Stephen and us home. What a picture of a home-going 
child of God, like a, a parent at the holiday season who's at the front door watching and waiting to welcome home their children. Here is Jesus at the doorstep of heaven watching, waiting to welcome home this child of God whom he has purchased with his shed blood. This reminds me of Luke 15 where the prodigal son is still in a far off country. He realizes what he's done. He wakens to himself, to his senses. He's like, I can go back to my father and I can just be a slave and I'll just work on the farm. I'll eat better than I'm eating here amongst these pigs. And what does he do? The son makes his way home and the scripture says that the father is watching. He's looking. My son's coming home, I know it. He's watching, he's waiting. And when he comes, he welcomes him home throws the, the robe on him, gives him a ring, throws a party. There's a celebration because what once was lost is found. What once was dead is now alive. My son has come home. What a picture that there's coming a day in which unless Jesus returns first, when you take your last breath, you fall into the arms of Jesus. Like a parent watching and waiting for their child to come home. There's coming a day in which you get to go home. And it's a home in which you've not been there yet, but it's a very real home nonetheless. You're known there, you're cared for there, and your faith becomes sight. You receive your reward, and his name is Jesus. Here is Jesus watching and waiting and welcoming Stephen home. And may I say to you, Jesus does the same with you. As he sees you and I scratching and clawing to remain faithful to him, to be hidden in Christ in the midst of our suffering and difficulties that we face in this world, Jesus, our great reward, stands eager to welcome you home. So, beloved, keep following Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. There's a celebration that's coming for those who remain to the end. And I say to you, for you to persevere to the end, you need the local church. You need people in your life who know your name and your life and who will love you the most to tell you the truth about yourself. People who encourage you and pray for you. My phone was blowing up last night from all these prayer requests of people coming in from our church. And I just thought, man, these people would be hurting so much if they didn't have the church around them. It's amazing to me. You need the church. And though there is not a perfect church yet, we will be perfect at the resurrection, you need the church to persevere, y'all. And here's my concern. I think the pandemic has given many people an excuse not to gather every week. My concern is that the national average is for Christians to gather in church twice a month. That's a problem. You need to be in the church. Why? Your soul needs to persevere in the gospel. You need people who will love you and encourage you. And by the way, people need you. When you are not gathering with God's people, you're missing the blessing of being the blessing, of being the servant, of being the encourager, of being the prayer warrior. Your church needs you. Your people need you. And they need you every week. They need you gathering and praying and encouraging and giving generously. It's what the mission of the, of the gospel can go forth. Let's, 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 can, we, can we just covenant together, like saying, listen, as followers of Jesus, 
unless providentially hindered, we're going to gather with God's people, okay? You've got to make that decision as a believer, as a husband, as a father, as a mom, as a wife, as a child. We're going to go gather with God's people. You need the church. Need it. And you need it to persevere to the end. I want you to behold this morning Stephen's vision of an exalted and enthroned son of man. But the second thing that happened to Stephen was the Sanhedrin's violence against the faithful father of Christ. The Sanhedrin had heard enough. So they yell, verse 57, at the top of their voices to drown out any more of Stephen's words. They cover their ears to reduce their exposure to the blasphemy that they think that he's spouting. Absolute chaos ensues. Stephen's declaration of seeing Jesus as the exalted son of man on the throne of God was too much for the Sanhedrin to handle. It was the last straw. So for them, it's time to fulfill Old Testament law, which says if someone commits blasphemy, they are to be stoned to death. So they drag Stephen out of the city and they begin to stone him. There's different ways that this has been done. Sometimes they would throw someone off of a wall or a high place and have them seek to land on their neck. And if that did not kill them, they would then throw rocks, boulders upon them. Or what could be the case here with Stephen is he's taken outside of the city to fulfill Jewish law. And they would take stones and throw them at him. Now, according to the Old Testament, the person who throws first are the accusers. So those back in Acts 6 who made the accusations against Stephen are probably those who are throwing the first stones. And here is Stephen, these rocks being thrown at his face, and his chest, and his body. Bones are being broken. Blood is, is spilling. But off to the side, there's a human coat rack. Off to the side, Luke tells us, is someone who's holding the robes of those who are throwing the rocks. And who is it? Saul. Like breadcrumbs being left on a trail. Like a clue that a detective is saying, don't forget that. Luke is planting Saul here at the scene of the crime because this man right here will one day write half the New Testament. Here in this moment, this Saul, as we're going to see later at the end of Acts, when we get there in about five years, <laughs> Saul doesn't forget this moment. He doesn't forget it. He remembers this moment with Stephen, and there he is affirming and celebrating his death. We'll come back to Saul very soon. But did you notice in Stephen's death the parallels between his death and the death of Jesus? I put in your notes, uh, you can get it on the Westwood app, um, they'll be on the screen, uh, seven similarities between Stephen's death and Jesus' death. Stephen enraged the Sanhedrin like Jesus. Stephen was accused of blasphemy like Jesus. Stephen was taken outside the city like Jesus. Stephen references Jesus as the son of man on the throne like Jesus. Stephen forgives his murderers like Jesus. 
Stephen was buried by sympathizers like Jesus. And Stephen prays for the salvation of his executioners, just like Jesus. Luke is holding up the death of Stephen and is showing the parallels between the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus. And what a model for you and I to mimic, for you and I to seek to honor Christ so that when those who seek to curse us, we don't curse back, we respond with blessing. That when there are those who seek to harm us, we don't throw things back, we speak words of affirmation and love. That we see Stephen modeling the gospel that this good news of Jesus had so infiltrated his heart and his life that in that moment he was prepared. Now for some, they seek to become like Stephen and say, well, when the time comes, I'll be ready. Well, the way that you get ready for this moment is by living for Jesus now. You don't wait until the end of your life and then decide, okay, now I'm going to honor Christ. And you're prepared for that moment. No, it takes day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month after month, following Jesus every day, just following him, being obedient. So Kenneth, what are you calling us to? What's your impact point of this? Hold this life loosely as you cling to Christ tightly. Hold this life loosely. This Saul, who we just talked about, and we're going to be unpacking for a very long time about his life, he'll say later in Acts 20, I believe it's verse, was it 31? I do not consider my life of any value to me. If only I might finish the race of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Hold your life loosely. Jesus said it like this in Matthew uh, chapter uh, 10, verse 39. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. You see, as a follower of Jesus, we have to die. You have to die to your old self. You have to die to your old nature. You have to die to your desires. You have to die to the plans and future of your life. And when you say, God, I'm giving up my life, uh, Kenneth Bruce died when I put my faith in Christ, and now my life is you. And when you deny yourself, when you die, you find life, okay? That's the paradox of the gospel. And the difference is that some people just don't want to die. Well, if you're not willing to die, you can't be a follower of Jesus. You have to be, say, I'm going to die to myself, and I'm going to live to Christ, It was eight years before his death that Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote an instant classic. It's called The Cost of Discipleship. It's a great book. And the key line in that book, he says this, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. As a follower of Jesus, you died when you put your faith in Christ. And now your life is hidden in Christ. And here is the gospel, a hill worth dying on, just like Stephen did. And when the time comes, when you're full of the Spirit, when you're walking with Jesus, you can stare death in the face and not blink.
All because the gospel is true.